Sex appeal runs all throughout our culture. It's plastered on billboards and magazines, on TV ads, and certainly in real-time live events. Without a doubt, sex sells. On today's Keeping It Real, we will highlight how the divine privilege of marital sex has been misused and abused by a culture bent on worshiping the god of lust. This will be part four of our Killer Gods and Idols series. The god of lust has been known as Eros in the Greek. And while this god seemingly sells people a bunch of goods, what really happens is a process that sinks one's soul to a depth of despair or arrogance that most don't ever come out of. This harsh reality has got cultures worldwide seemingly by the throat, so to speak. But if you have participated in the lifestyle of lust, hope is here. So stay tuned in discovering how worshiping the god of lust and the effects thereof can be reversed and a reforming process can take place. Welcome to the Keeping It Real podcast. Only tired of fake stuff? Shouldn't we turn down a stale brand of living? It's time to open our hearts to Christ. It's time to keep it real. Here's your host, Ollie G. Welcome back to another edition of the Keeping It Real podcast. I'm your host, Ollie G, and we are in part four of our Killer Gods and Idols series today. This one centers on the God of Lust. I know that this one in particular will be controversial to many, uh, even within the church, because marriage has been devalued and lowered. The value of the sacrament of marriage has been lowered to such a degree to where even being married uh, in Christian circles seems like an unpopular option. Uh, the more appealing option is to just move in together, either for financial reasons or convenience reasons, or most often is the case for sensual or sexual reasons, which is what we're going to be covering on this episode of the Keeping It Real podcast today. Sex has been instituted by God long ago. It's a divine privilege for people within marital bounds, that is for married people. Started all the way in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Adam was created first, and then God saw fit for him to not be alone and that he would create a helper for him or a helpmate, a companion suitable for him. So he created a woman known as Eve. And he instructed them right from the beginning, right from the jump in Genesis chapter one, as well as all living things, all the animals and whatnot, to be fruitful and multiply. So marriage was instituted by God for lots of reasons. But chief among them was for them to have the privilege, the divine privilege, as I describe it, of sex or being able to have sexual relations. In part, this is for uh, enjoyment uh, for married people. Sex is a wonderful thing, an awesome thing, thing from God that he created and orchestrated, but also for the purpose of procreation. He says to be fruitful and multiply. This is how the birth of children take place. And if you notice, children can't be born any other way. Can't be born by two women, can't be born by two men, and can't be uh, born really through any other process other than uh, through a man and woman having sex. So God institutes this divine privilege of sex. Now, unfortunately, what has been popularized uh, within our culture, and not just here recently, 
it's been going on for years, centuries and centuries worth. In fact, we can look just some chapters later, not many, in the book of Genesis and how two cities in particular, Sodom and Gomorrah, had been plagued with an abuse and misuse of sex. And God ultimately judged those two cities with fire and brimstone. But sex, without a question, sells. It is part of a worldly system. Again, I refer back to an earlier podcast episode, the difference between two kingdoms. We have a worldly kingdom and then the kingdom of God. And so when sex is idolized or sex is um, participated in outside of the scope of marriage and people think it's okay, they're indifferent to it, and they basically thumb their nose up at God, even knowing at times, or a lot of people know that marriage is a sacrament and within the confines of marriage, uh, God allows sex or not only permits sex, but wants sex to happen, but it should never happen, should never uh, be participated in outside of marriage. And I know, that, again, that this is an unpopular message, certainly for the world of, at large, but even within Christian circles, because many Christians are not getting married or they're waiting a long time to get married after having lived together and having had sexual relations with one another. Sex sells, without a doubt. It's all in how it's marketed, as I mentioned from the jump. It is advertised, it is promoted in so many different venues, in so many different ways. It's really impossible to even steer clear of it. I mean, you would have to lock yourself in your house to basically not really be abreast to it or be uh, bombarded with it. So it's certainly branded in certain ways as well. It is branded in such a way to for it to be appealing to people, for people to uh, grab their attention uh, to it to be lured by it, to be captivated by it, and ultimately to participate in it. So sex does sell, but may I suggest sex sinks as well. The worldly system uh, will sink and bring down, bring devour a person in any which way possible. And it includes the avenue of worshiping this God of lust. And it'll bring a person to deep despair oftentimes, or it will formulate an, an attitude in a person's heart where they are just arrogant and just could care less. They will be completely indifferent to the immorality of sex outside of marriage. Sex certainly sells, but it leaves a person spiritually poor at best and possibly spiritually broke. The God of lust worshiper, they do this basically with two characteristics. The God of lust worshiper does so with two characteristics. Now, before we get in to the meat and potatoes of this message today, I want to look at a passage of scripture in John chapter four, a familiar passage of scripture to many Christians and deals with the Samaritan woman at this particular well that she comes to draw water from. Give a little bit of a background, first of all, of the woman. She has had a loaded life. It's filled, saturated with immorality. It is saturated in sin. And Jesus, on this particular day in John chapter 4, goes to meet her. We are introduced with just Jesus' prompting. He says he had to go 
here. He had to go through Sychar, get to this well, because he knows all things. And he knows this woman is going to show up to draw water. And he goes there with the express purpose of interacting and engaging with her. Now, bear in mind, this is a big no-no for Jesus in a worldly system sense. Even the disciples wouldn't understand this or wouldn't be able to get it. Samaritans and Jews didn't interact with one another. They hated each other. Big time racism going on here or prejudice, shall we say. Samaritans and Jews just didn't get along. So this Samaritan woman, when she shows up at the well and she sees Jesus and Jesus begins to interact with her, she is very much taken aback. She is surprised. She's wondering what in the world he's even doing there, much less talking to her, a Samaritan woman, because the Jews were the ones that looked down upon the Samaritans. So she goes there to draw water and Jesus starts talking with her like, you know, this water that you're looking to draw from is going to leave you thirsty. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never be thirsty. So the woman is wondering, what is this guy up to? What? She finds him interesting. First of all, the fact that she would even talk to him, period, about anything, let alone specifically now about this water, this well. She is coming at a time where she believes she is going to be undetected. She comes at a time of the day where no one she's expecting no one else to be there. But Jesus is there. And Jesus starts talking to her about this water. And so the woman says to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw water again. So we'll pick up now in verse 16. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. So he shifts the conversation from the water to her domestic life, her personal life, her home life. And he he says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so... First of all, gust of lust, God of lust worshipers, they do so without remorse. Jesus shifts the conversation from the water or the subject of the water in the well and the living water, that being him, and he shifts it now to her personal life. He gets in, he gets into the next level of the conversation. He probes, he he escalates the intensity of this conversation. Little does she know that, but he escalates the the intensity of this conversation. And he says, go call your husband and come here. And she responds with, I have no husband. So God of lust worshipers, they worship 
this God without remorse. Now, when she says, I have no husband, she spoke truthfully. But bear in mind, again, the context of the exchange between the two people involved. Jesus, a Jew, the woman, a Samaritan. The fact that they're conversating at all is amazing. But the woman is not bashful. She is not thinking anything of being open and transparent with this stranger. Not only just a stranger, a Jewish stranger at that. She could have lied. She could have said, listen, um, my, I have a boyfriend and he's back at that. He's back at the crib and I don't really know what he's up to. Um, or, or, you know, I have a boyfriend and he's, you know, somewhere else, you know, he's not from around here. She could have lied. She could have fabricated something, but she just comes right out with it and says, I have no husband. Now she had to have known that he was already onto something because it's amazing that he would talk to her, much less engage with her about something meaningful, like the water, the subject of the water that they were on prior. She says, I have no husband. That has indifference, has uncaring spirit written all over it. She's just like, she's letting loose. What does she care? Because it's already amazing that the conversation has gotten this far. So she probably figures, yeah, I might as well go ahead and just come right out with it. So there's, and the reason why she comes right out with it is because there's seeming no accountability. She has lived her entire life this way. And we're going to get into more of the nuts and bolts of her life and how dark it has been, how desperate it has been. But there's no accountability for this woman. She just comes right out with it. Now, bear in mind, she has no idea, at least not yet, not at this phase of the conversation, that Jesus is the Messiah. She has no idea that this is going to be the word that was made flesh, that word that was going to come to die die upon a cross for the sins of man, but who would rise from the grave and conquer death. That's the gospel message that was already outlined by the prophets, prophesied years ago, that even the Samaritans had heard or been abreast of. Because later in the conversation, she does say, the Messiah, we have been heard that this Messiah is coming. Now, she has no idea that it's him. She doesn't even, it's not on our radar that it's him. She doesn't think it's possible that it's him, at least at this phase of the conversation. So there's no accountability for this woman. And that's what a person with no accountability does. They just come right out with, there's no remorse. So the God of lust worshiper has no remorse. Sex certainly sells, but it leaves a person spiritually poor at best, and it possibly could leave a person spiritually broke. This woman here was very poor. And I'm not talking about monetarily. She was down as far as one could really get down. She Her life was a royal mess. But listen, you might be thinking, hey, yeah, this, this woman, she is, she's got a dark past. My life isn't anything quite like hers. I haven't had five spouses and I'm not now living with somebody else. And I'm not, you know, a Samaritan or somebody that is viewed upon as less than um, I might have just done this, maybe viewed some pornography. I have just worshipped the God of lust by just cohabit cohabiting with one person, and we've done so for years. 
Um, I'm not nearly as bad as this woman. Well, may I suggest there have been some super saints that have been captured by the God of lust per se. First of all, Abraham, (laughs) considered the father, father of faith by many. In the book of Genesis, we read about how his wife Sarai, who later became Sarah, recommended, because they were past childbearing age, recommended that he sleep with an Egyptian known as Hagar. Hagar, significantly younger, undoubtedly physically attractive, because I would find it hard to imagine Abraham having sex with a woman that he found to be ugly. Okay, so, and the Bible describes her as someone who is attractive. And so Abraham was willing to have sex with Hagar, an Egyptian, someone of a different nationality, a maidservant, someone that wasn't of his nationality, someone that wasn't at, say, per se, his level. He was a wealthy man. He was a highly prestigious man. He goes and has sex with a maidservant. So we see how the quote-unquote father of faith fell into a, a time of worshiping the God of lust. Well, not just him. How about David? David is described as a man after God's own heart in the Bible, and yet he his eyes wandered off onto a woman one day, someone who was not his wife. He was already married. Want, his eyes wander onto Bathsheba, and he ends up having sex with her, and they have a child out of wedlock, and then that leads to murder. David sets up to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. You want to talk about not only worshiping the God of lust, he worships the God of hate as well. And I encourage everyone to listen to the prior episode entitled The God of Hate, Part 3 of this Killer Gods and Idols series. But David did eventually repent. It took him an over, over a year to repent, but he did so. And so we see how sex manifests itself outside of the confines of marriage. Sex is an incredible divine privilege. It's a wonderful thing, beautiful thing. It's an enjoyable thing for married people, but married people only. Anything outside of that is sinful or it goes contrary to God. God is not pleased with that. I know sex sells, but there is an emphasis as sex sells on no accountability. There's no stressing of accountability. They wouldn't want to because then the product would have trouble selling, whether if it's a pack of cigarettes or a brand of beer or a trip to some place or what have you, whatever it is that they're marketing or promoting. Sex oftentimes is a part of it, and there's never a stressing of accountability. This leads to other parts. Think about how not only sex will sink a person or two people within a relationship, but then other things get affected. If there is a pregnancy and then that pregnancy is unwanted, a lot of times what happens? Abortion ensues. And abortion obviously is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. We are fashioned by God. The Bible says that children are a heritage or a gift of the Lord. A pregnancy should never be unwanted, no matter what the circumstances, because if God is the creator and we are all fearfully and wonderfully made, there are never any accidents and there's never any trash within any womb. 
God views a newborn child or a child that is expectant to come into the world as very valuable and a tremendous treasure. So not only does it affect when we have sex and then there's a quote unquote unwanted pregnancy, there's oftentimes abortion ensues, or if the more favorable option is embraced, and that is to actually have the child, that child, while the, they receive the blessing of being born, they live under, they grow up under this whole concept of mom and dad not having been married. They had me without being married. They have participated in sex not being married. And so then there's a great chance that greater chance as otherwise that the child will also participate in that lifestyle and consecrating themselves to the God of lust. This is what sex does. It sinks. It sinks a person into great despair or arrogance. Now, the woman had five husbands in this passage of scripture of John chapter four, five husbands. And after the fifth, she gets to the sixth guy, or it could be guys after that. I don't know. But at the very minimum, the sixth guy that she's been with, and she's okay with cohabiting. She doesn't even marry this one. She's just okay with living with the guy and in all likelihood having sex with the guy. This is all an operation outside of the created order. Remember that Adam and Eve were in a sense married. And their wedding vows are clearly laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he instructs them to be fruitful and multiply. It was only after they were united and described as becoming one flesh. That's what marriage is. A union of two people becoming one flesh. And when they became one flesh, that's when they were exhorted and encouraged to have children. And of course, we all know. What Again, what it takes to have kids. There's only one way to have children. Well, not only is the God of lust worshiper without remorse, another characteristic is that they are without limitation. Again, a lot of times, just as with the God of hate that we touched on in the last episode of this series on the podcast, we talked about how hate begets more hate and it leads a person to misery. Sex runs in a very similar fashion. Sex certainly sells, but it leaves a person spiritually poor at best and possibly spiritually broke because it's usually not just one or two times or a couple of instances here and there. It, it, it is a pattern of life. It is a way of life. It is a lifestyle of lust, of constant participation in sex outside of marriage, premarital sex or outside of the confines of marriage. So without limitation, and we see this with the woman again in this passage, Jesus responded to her and he says to her, you have well said, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one, the one whom you now have is not your husband. So you spoke truly. So he now unpacks this woman's history which had to have been astonishing to this woman because, again, she perceives him as a complete stranger. She's just going there to get some water. She just wanted to show up at the well, just get some water, hope nobody sees her, hope she can leave undetected, go back to her man and live her miserable life. That is what she was hoping for. But unexpectedly, she gets confronted by this stranger, a Jew no less. 
And then this Jew begins talking to her. They Samaritans and Jews don't talk. They don't get around one another. They don't like one another. They have nothing to do with one another. And this man starts talking to her about the water. And now he unpacks her life history, as dark as it is, as desperate as it is. He unpacks it. So he says to her, you have had five husbands. He knows everything about this woman. He knows her track record. He knows her history. Now think about this for a second. We're going to look at this whole thing of five husbands in two ways. First of all, there's a duration of time here. Now, I don't think that this woman was like Dennis Rodman, where she married one husband and was married for a day and then got a divorce. And then she married another husband the following week and was married to him for a day or two and got a divorce. I don't think that's the way it went down. I think there's a duration of time here. Now, she may have been married to one or two of these guys for a few months or six months or so, but I would dare to say that she was probably married to a couple of them for a few years or more. Uh, it doesn't say. We don't have that here in the scriptures. Um, but the way how divorce was viewed upon so negatively, particularly in that culture, I would dare to say that she was probably married to each of them for a few years. Now, let's just say conservatively that she was married to each of them for an average of two years, okay? Let's just say that hypothetically. That means if she had five husbands and she was married to each of them for an average of two years, that's a period of time of 10 years. Bear in mind that the average lifespan of a person at this time was usually in their upper 30s. If you saw the 40s or your mid 40s, you were doing good. People did not live a long time at this particular point in history. They did, they were plagued with a lot of diseases and illnesses, and they certainly didn't have modern medicine to combat it. There were not hospitals and, and overnight care centers and emergency rooms and none of that. So the, if you saw age 40, 45, you were doing pretty well. So think about this. People were getting married at a fairly young age, usually as teenagers back at that time, 16, 17, not uncommon for people to be married at that time. So if she got married at the first time at age 16 and she married five different guys and it ran for a duration of over 10 years or more, we're talking most of a good chunk of her life, a significant portion of her life. 10 years back then, was a lot more impactful, a lot more pointed than 10 years of today. Now, don't get me wrong, 10 years of today is a long time, and we would value 10 years worth of time, but it didn't compare to this time. 10 years was very significant, particularly from the age of 17 to 27 or 30 or so. That would be considered the prime of your life. And that's where she was married to five different guys. Not only do we want to consider the duration of time, we want to consider the volume. She had five husbands. You would figure maybe after the second husband, she would call it quits. She'd be like, this isn't working. Or maybe after the third husband, you know, third time's a charm. Nah, that didn't work. Why would she try this a couple of more times? She did. She had five husbands. And as far as we can tell, her womb was barren. She never had children. 
So I don't know if that's maybe one thing she was after with these men. Maybe she was hoping for the miracle of the birth of a child. Maybe that's what she was hoping and man that she was with at this time when she was talking to Jesus, who was not her husband. Maybe she was hoping just to get pregnant, just the opportunity to have a child. Does that sound familiar? A lot of folks be doing that now. So, but we, so what we have here is that if the God of lust worshiper will do so without remorse and they will do so without limitation. I know sex sells. And again, I want to revisit the duration of time element here. And not just with the woman. Again, this was the prime of her life. But think of the duration of time. If you are listening to this, and if you've actually made it to this point in this message, in this episode of the podcast, and you have been a participant in a lustful lifestyle in, in consecrating to the God of lust in essence. And there's been, there's got to have been probably a duration of time. Maybe you've lived with someone and you've lived with them for years and you just think nothing of it. Maybe you've lived with several people over the years, just hoping it would work. You, you testing it out. You're cohabiting with someone you're, you're having sex and you're sharing everything that a married couple should share, including sex but you're not committing to marriage because you just want to see if it works out because I've gotten that line lots of times. I know sex sells and I know that sex is captivating and that is a motivation. There's this lustful urge, whether if you're a man or a woman, there's this urge to participate in sex. Chances are there is, there's not an interest in being confined or complicating, quote unquote, complicating things along the lines of marriage. So you'd rather choose it easy. Not only is there a duration in that sex certainly sells, but it leaves a person spiritually poor at best and possibly even spiritually broke. But then there's a volume element as well. I'll revisit this element. Think about what is going on in our culture today. What is going on in the world along the lines of sex? There is talks of partners, multiple partners, a variety of partners, and it all starts really with the whole pornographic landscape. Pornography in the Greek is pornornia, and that has captivated. That is a multi-billion dollar industry that has captivated cultures worldwide. It has totally ensnared people, ensnared them not only in a, in a habitual lifestyle, but it has ensnared them in their thinking, the thoughts of their heart thinking that there's nothing much wrong with it. it I, yeah, I know a lot of people view it as disgusting or inappropriate, but it's not really bad. Because again, after all, it, I haven't, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. So if I participate in pornography, it's okay. And then that's where it starts. And then it leads to an actual application in participating in a lot of things that that arena promotes. And it ends up manifesting itself in people's lives in real time. So not only does sex sell, but then it sinks. It starts oftentimes in the arena of pornography, but then it go, that gets kicked down the road further. And then it manifests itself in all kinds of ways. And that's where it goes. And it ultimately leaves a person spiritually poor at best and ultimately spiritually broke for many people. Dare I say for most people. Now, I say spiritually poor for a number of people because 
there are a number of Christians that are susceptible and they get ensnared by sacrificing to the God of lust, whether it be entrapment in pornography or participating in sexual lewd acts. And listen, this plagued the church at Corinth majorly. Paul wrote two letters to the church at Corinth, and he also visited there. And in his first letter to the church at Corinth, they had many problems, which included sex addictions. There was even incest going on. And he describes many of those people at that church as believers, or he recognizes them as believers because he addresses them as brothers and sisters, or he describes them as the church at Corinth. Now, there were some unbelievers in that midst as well, make no mistake, but there were many Christians there, and Christians were participating in this. So this is not just a message for lost people. This is not just a message for people who are outside of Christ. This is also for the church, because listen, Barna Research makes it clear, they give stats on how many Christians are actually admittedly or openly involved in viewing pornography, and habitually so. Those outside of Christ, this is also for people who name the name of Christ. So the Sex certainly sells, but it leaves a person spiritually poor at best and more likely spiritually broke because a lot of times it's people outside of Christ. And if you don't have Christ, you are spiritually broke. Now, I will also say that yours truly will be so bold and fresh to say that I have had a lustful intention. I have had instances where I have viewed upon a woman lustfully or looked at her in a way that would be inappropriate. I have done this, chances are, so have you. For an individual to say that there has never been uh, a lustful viewing or intention or any kind of urge, dare I say that individual is not human or they're not being honest. Well, what does it take to reverse this tide? What does it, what needs to happen to stem this, reverse this? Well, it starts with no longer buying into lust because again, sex sells. There, The God of lust is looking to sell you a bill of goods, thinking that there's no consequence, thinking that there's no pain, or if there is pain, it'll be minimal, that there's no, nothing bad or not much bad that will result from it. Well, may I suggest, yes, the God of lust is after wrecking people, wrecking families. You want to see what the God of lust has done? Look at the family. The family has completely been destroyed, plagued by adultery, plagued by addictions to sex, having interest in multiple partners, different partners, uh, the gay and lesbian or the LGBTQ community. And pornography has ultimately had an agenda to wreck the family. So, what can be done to reverse this, this lifestyle that goes for the God of lust? That is no longer buying into it. No more, no longer accepting what they're selling. No, lo no longer accepting what the God of lust is selling. No longer accepting what sex outside of marriage is selling. And taking every evil thought captive and make it, making it obedient to Christ, as Paul says to the church at Corinth in his second letter to the Corinthians. How do we take every evil thought captive? Well, first of all, it starts with a relationship with Christ. The only way how there can be even any reversal, any hope for a reversal, is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that would involve laying one's life down, accepting Christ 
as their personal savior, believing that when he died on the cross, he died for the sins of man, and that when someone accepts him as their savior, but not only as their savior, as their Lord, they accept him as Lord. They want him master, as king of their life. And that's what I meant by laying our lives down and believing that when he rose from the grave, he conquered death and victory, and that there is hope for us to conquer death and victory as well. The victory is ours. And it be so then we can begin to operate from a point of victory and not seeking out victory all the time. And that message is also for the church or for Christians. Too many times Christians not only get defeated, they can't get out of defeat because they think victory is something to be attained. You already have the victory. If you are truly in Christ, you are you are identified with him, you are in him, and you have the freedom and the power to work and live your life from a point of victory, not seeking out victory like it's out there somewhere for you to reach out and grab onto. So we can take every evil thought captive provided that we are in Christ, and then we must agree with who Jesus is as Lord. It is not enough to know him as Savior to break a stronghold, to break an unhealthy lifestyle, to break an ungodly lifestyle, a lifestyle of sin. There, you got to be willing to pull out all the stops, and that's what it means to not just recognize Jesus as Savior, but to recognize Him as Lord. That He is to be in control of everything. He is to He owns it all. He wants it all, and all we have to do is come to Him in faith and behold Him. To be willing to be captivated by Him, to respond to Him when He says something, when He's speaking, when He's working, when He's convicting, when He's leading, to respond to Him and be willing to lay it all down, pulling out all the stops. That's what will reverse this allegiance to the God of lust because it takes the name of Christ, the power of his name, the power of his spirit to break that and ultimately live for him. And when we are so far into Christ, when we are pressing so far into him, the God of lust and any other God and any other idol will have no say. They have no opportunity to get at you or to get at me. What Praise the name of Jesus Christ. We've got one more part coming up. I greatly encourage you to stay tuned to the fifth and final part of this series, the Killer Gods and Idols series, that will wrap up in the next episode.